Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another Blaney's podcast. We're coming to you kind of live from Spence Thomas Recording Studios. Uh, Blaney McMurtry is a full-service law firm located in downtown Toronto on 2 Queen Street East. We have 120 hardworking, conscientious, and mostly brilliant lawyers who are there to assist you uh, in everything that uh, you need. Today, we have a very special guest. We have my partner, David Ma. Uh, David does a lot of work in cryptocurrency and, of course, technology. And today's topic is going to be cryptocurrency. It's a hot topic. It's been in the news in, in the last little while. And it has some very interesting and specific characteristics to it that many lawyers find not difficult, but challenging to understand, to fit into our usual forms of property that we are used to. I'm going to start off this podcast with a little story that I read in a paper prepared by uh, Alexander Bernstein and Fabian Schar about the stone money of Yap. Now, Yap was a, uh, an, a large island called Yap Island where there were large mill-like stones that were actually used as a medium of exchange. And each inhabitant would bring stones from their neighboring island of Palau back to Yap Island and would set it on their property. These stones, in fact, became the currency or the exchange or the medium that was used in Yap. But because the stones were so large, it had to remain in its original location. And the unit of value for that stone could actually be, if you wish, notionally detached from it and circulated irrespective of the stone's whereabouts. It was sufficient that all the inhabitants knew who the owner of every stone was. The separation between the unit of value and the stone went so far that even the unit of value for stones that were lost at sea remained in circulation. The stone money of Yap can therefore be described as a quasi-virtual currency as each unit of value was only loosely linked to a physical object. The app system was based on a distributed ledger in which every inhabitant could keep track of the stone's ownership. When a buyer made a purchase, this person told his or her neighbors that the stone now belonged to the seller. The neighbors then spread the news until finally all of the island's inhabitants had been informed about the change of ownership. Through this communication, every islander had a precise idea of which unit of value belonged to which person at any point in time. In its essential features, the YAP payment system is very similar to the Bitcoin system. Now, I'm gonna turn this over to you, David, and perhaps you can explain to me the notion of a ledger and how the stones of YAP uh, and the ledgers recording that is similar to, but different than what we understand Bitcoin to be. Well, I guess, first of all, there is no stone with Bitcoin. <laughs> But uh, in other aspects, yeah, it's it's pretty similar. Uh, the basic way that uh, that that Bitcoin works is that uh, it is a distributed ledger. So there's you know uh, currently around ten thousand nodes or computers that people operate that each individually hold a copy of the entire Bitcoin ledger. So there's multiple copies of this uh, ledger stored at ten thousand computers. Uh, across the globe, and people enter in transactions, and they get stored in the uh, in this ledger that gets replicated ten thousand times, and that's how people transact. I guess the other important distinction between the 
the uh, YAP system in Bitcoin is that it uh, uses cryptography to make sure that um, the records uh, aren't, you know, altered improperly, that there's no, you know, funny business going on with the transactions. So how did this notion of Bitcoin come to be? Um, did it just spring from the air or was it invented by somebody? It, it was kind of invented by somebody, but so the, 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 the inventor of Bitcoin uh, was a, a person or persons that called themselves Satoshi Nakamoto. And the reason I say that is because Satoshi Nakamoto is, uh, is a pseudonym. Uh, they took on this name uh, for some, for whatever reason, they didn't want to reveal their, their true identity. And they wrote a white paper many years ago that described uh, how Bitcoin would work. And then they came out with the software. They, they were the ones that initially developed and published the software and issued what's called the, the Genesis block. In other words, the first transaction um, on the Bitcoin ledger. So uh, in a sense, um, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto can be considered to be the inventor of uh, Bitcoin, but there, there are a lot of other factors there as well. So for example, uh, the whole notion of cryptocurrency of Bitcoin uh, presumes the existence of uh, public key cryptography which certainly wasn't something that was invented by Mr. Nakamoto. It was something that was invented by numerous folks over the years, starting back in the 70s. And there were actually even crude forms of cryptocurrency that were developed, I think, uh, back in the 80s. There was one that, that actually um, relied on publication of ledger entries in, in newspapers as a way to preserve and uh, ensure uh, the integrity of records over time on the assumption that, you know, there's so many copies of the paper, it's impossible to uh, fraudulently alter all of them. Uh, I forgot who did that, but uh, it was a similar notion as, uh, as Bitcoin. So the notion of cryptography, which in essence keeps the Bitcoin, I guess, key, private and confidential, uh, is one of the uh, important attributes to the Bitcoin. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So is there a finite amount of Bitcoin uh, available in the world? And if there is, who controls that number? Uh, there is a finite uh, number of Bitcoin and that was uh, by design. So the initial software that was written in, uh, I think in the white paper as well, there was an upper limit placed on the number of Bitcoin that could be created. These inventors uh, who issued or, or created the Bitcoin and determined the maximum amount of value uh, or number of Bitcoin. Who are these? Is, is it an institution? Is it a government? Is, uh, is it a bunch of different people? Who are, what is it? Uh, an organization. I think it's called the Bitcoin Foundation. And there's a core group of developers that maintain and administer the, uh, the core code that people use to transact on Bitcoin, the core code as well as the protocols. When we talk about Bitcoin, we talk about uh, keys, uh, private keys, public keys. What does that mean? Private keys and public keys are, are um, you know, basically long strings of numbers that are used in what's called public key cryptography. And basically the way, I'll, I'll try and <laughs> make this really short. Uh, the way public key cryptography works is you have two elements, a private key and a public key. The private key is something that you keep secret. You never ever tell anybody your private key, you safeguard it, you make sure that it's always kept very, very safe. Uh, and the reason for that is because 
Uh, you can do a number of things with a, with a private key. So for example, you can cryptographically sign a message, uh, which can include a transaction, with your private key. And what happens is, you know, you keep the private key uh, confidential and you publish your public key. You can even put it up on a website if you want. And what people can do, for example, the recipient of one of your messages, they can take your message, they can review the cryptographic signature together with your public key and confirm that it's actually coming from you. So it validates the integrity of the message that you're sending out. And again, that includes a transaction, which is why it's important for something like Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency. And the other thing about a cryptographic signature is it preserves the integrity of your message as well, right? So if you cryptographically sign a message or a transaction, and then somebody, let's say, intercepts that message and tries to change even one letter in that message, then the cryptographic signature that's attached to it will be uh, will be invalid. Right? Somebody can take your public key, take that signature, take the message, and uh, very easily confirm that you know there there is a problem with that with that message. We also hear about terms such as wallets. Uh, how do wallets work with Bitcoin? Well, a wallet. Um, isn't exactly the same as, you know, a, a physical wallet. That's the, the, the terminology they use. But effectively, what a wallet is, is, um, you know, a, a placeholder on the ledger that says, you know, you own X Bitcoin. And that's, that's, that's all it is. And of course, there's a couple of things associated with that address on the ledger as well. There's your private key and there's your public key. And that's how you conduct transactions using your wallet. And the private key is a series of numbers and letters, I presume. Uh, yeah. How do you maintain knowledge of that? And how do you keep that key, uh, those series of numbers? Do you just write it down on the back of an envelope <clears throat> and put it in your desk? Well, there's a number of ways you can do it. I mean, most people these days, they'll record it electronically in some way, shape, or form. So, you know, they'll store it on their computer. They'll store it on their smartphone. Um, and, and the reason to do that is because it makes it a little bit easier to transact. But... Uh, you're absolutely right. What you can do, it's it basically a string of letters and numbers. If you wanted to, you could write it down on a piece of paper and put it away and delete it from all your computers and put it in the in your desk drawer. In fact, you know, there's a, there's actually a term for that when you uh, uh, remove your private key from the computer or smartphone and take it offline. Uh, it's called a cold wallet or, you know, in the case of paper, like that could be a USB stick, for example. I presume that if you lose those numbers and letters or private key numbers, you can't get access to your cryptocurrency. Uh, yeah, pretty well. If you lose your private key, uh, unless you know somebody manages to figure out a way to break the particular cryptography that's being used, um, then really there's, and that hasn't to my knowledge happened yet, uh, there's no way to recover those funds. We'll come back to that later when we talk about whether or not there should be a backdoor to the cryptocurrency. But for the time being, there are a couple of other definitions I want to go through with you so that I, I think better understand how the process works. What is blockchain and how does that work with Bitcoin? Well, blockchain is really just a generic term that describes uh, the structure of the Bitcoin ledger and you know ledgers that are used by other cryptocurrencies. So the reason why it's called the blockchain is because of the particular structure uh, of, of the ledger. So basically the way, the reason why it's called the blockchain is because uh, individuals called miners who are tasked with adding transactions to the blockchain will consolidate a bunch of transactions and assemble them into, 
you know, a, a, a block of transactions. And as a part of the process, uh, the, the quote unquote mining process, basically what they're doing is they're trying to solve a very difficult mathematical puzzle. And if they're able to solve it correctly, then they get the right to add it on to, uh, add it on to the ledger. And when they add it onto the ledger, it's, it's actually cryptographically linked to the previous block. And so uh, it becomes a link of blocks, hence the term blockchain. So then how does mining actually work with Bitcoin? Well, Bitcoin uses what they call a proof of work approach to, to mining. So uh, a miner will solve uh, a very difficult mathematical puzzle uh, in order to, and the first one to do so wins the right to add a block of transactions to the blockchain, and then they're rewarded with the issuance of an amount of cryptocurrency. So that's that's one approach. That's the approach that Bitcoin uses. There there certainly are other approaches as well to uh, validating transactions that are added to uh, to a blockchain. How do we explain the um, increase uh, or inflation? of the price of Bitcoins. Why does that occur? I, I won't even begin to uh, offer an explanation as to why Bitcoin has increased in value because, you know, ask any person uh, and they'll give you a different answer. Now, that being said, I mean, I think really the, the basic reason why Bitcoin has increased uh, simply boils down to uh, supply and demand, right? There's a certain, am a certain amount of Bitcoin and for whatever reason, uh, over time and over, you know, the last, let's say, four or five years, it's become more popular. More people want to own Bitcoin for whatever reason. And, you know, as you know, uh, as demand increases uh, and supply remains constant, which it more or less will for Bitcoin, given that, you know, it's the rate at which it increases uh, will level off at the time and ultimately uh, reach a cap. Um, if you have more demand and a constant supply, then the price will will go up. Um, and I think that's really the essence of it. I mean, I, I, I my, my own personal opinion is that I don't think Bitcoin uh, inherently has any, you know, intrinsic worth, let's say. It's, it's a number on a ledger, right? Its only value is uh, the utility of being able to use it uh, elsewhere. Right? So if you want to buy something, then you can use your Bitcoin and, and, and do so. And that's, that's basically it. So then let's talk about the actual utility of Bitcoin in terms of transactions. How would one go about using their Bitcoin to purchase, let's think of something, um, a motorcycle? How would that transaction actually take place? Well, assuming that uh, the seller of the motorcycle has their own uh, Bitcoin wallet, then all you would need to do is to get their, their public key. Uh, and then initiate a transaction using your own private key, send it to that their their public key, and, and, and that's it. It seems to me that there's not as many people who would accept Bitcoin as a form of currency as there is people who would accept Visa cards or American Express cards as, for, as a form of currency. That doesn't explain the desire for people to buy Bitcoin at these escalated increased prices. It's really a commodity that seems to have an intrinsic value all of its own because maybe of the, of the total amount and the scarcity of it other than its utility. Would you agree with that? 
I, I'm not sure I would, to be honest with you. Like, I, I just don't really see Bitcoin as having any sort of uh, intrinsic value other than what people are, are, are willing to, to pay for it. Now, that, just to be clear, I'm certainly not suggesting that uh, Bitcoin is, you know, somehow invalid or an improper uh, asset to, like, it, it can certainly appreciate over time. But uh, having an intrinsic value per se, I just don't. Uh, I don't. I don't see it. It's a. It's an electronic number on a ledger. That's. That's it. Which is controlled really by the supply and demand. Uh, yes. Uh, explain this to me, and because I, I've been wrestling with this concept for for a while now, if there's a finite number of bitcoins in this world, and the bitcoin utility is limited to those people who will accept the bitcoin as if you wish, a kind of currency, isn't really the, the party who controls the amount of Bitcoin really controlling the value? Uh, well, y yes and no. There, there's no one person that actually controls the, uh, the amount of Bitcoin. That's already baked into the, uh, into the protocols, into the software. So, uh, and e even the rate at which uh, new Bitcoin is mined is, is also controlled. So, for example, if the total amount of miners in the world increases, then uh, it automatically uh, regulates so that it becomes more difficult to, to mine new coins. So, it's all, you know, in a sense automated, so it's not really controlled by any one person. Now, granted... Um, they could do something like uh, what's called a hard fork. They could actually modify the software and say to the entire world, we're changing things. We're now going to increase the limit, uh, the, the upper limit of Bitcoin from whatever it is, 10,000 Bitcoins to 20,000 Bitcoins, whatever the number is. <clears throat> that, that can certainly be done, but it also is dependent on that being accepted by people as well, right? People that operate the nodes have to agree to then adopt and use, start using the new software in order for that to actually happen. So it's really the, the baked-in software that controls the way Bitcoin is used, distributed, mined, and ultimately valued. Uh, well, uh, yes, with to all of those, except perhaps with respect to the value. Um, I, I think the the ultimate limit on the number of Bitcoin does will have some impact on the value, but it's certainly not the controlling factor. One of the issues that have arisen recently, and this is a result of the crypto exchange Quadriga. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of that. Yes. Uh, and Quadriga was a uh, a, a cryptocurrency exchange located on an individual, I think James Cotton is his name, on his laptop. Can you tell me, first of all, before we, we jump into this case, what is a crypto exchange? Well, basically, uh, a crypto exchange is similar to, uh, you know, a foreign exchange office, right? So let's say if you have Canadian dollars and you need U.S. dollars, you go to a foreign exchange dealer, you give them your Canadian dollars, they give you U.S. dollars. Uh, crypto exchange is exactly the same thing, except they deal in cryptocurrencies. So let's say you have 100 Bitcoin, you want to get, you know, your $60,000 out, or you want to change it into Canadian dollars. You would go to uh, a crypto exchange like Quadriga to exchange your cryptocurrency for uh, fiat currency, Canadian dollars, U.S. dollars, German marks what have you. And of course, you can also change it into other cryptocurrency, Litecoin, Bitcoin Cash, what have you. The individuals who were financially hurt by, uh, I guess, the, the death and the uh, insolvency of Quadriga, 
were those individuals who left their Bitcoin deposited in the exchange. Uh, yeah, basically they were. But why would they do that? Why would they leave it in the, an exchange? Because I know that if I go to a foreign exchange and change my dollars into pesos or whatever have you, I, I wouldn't leave my pesos there. Why would they leave their, their Bitcoin there? That question, I, I'm, I'm not sure I, I, I know the answer to. It may be just, I, I can speculate, but I can't really tell you what their motivations are. I mean, some people do it because, simply because of, of convenience, right? It's a lot easier to administer your cryptocurrencies when you have an account with, with an exchange. You can, it, it's, it's right there. You can just access the website. If you want to buy and sell very quickly, then you can do so with, you know, little, little muss or fuss. It's very, very very convenient. So I guess, you know, that may be one of the reasons. I guess uh, another reason uh, is that people don't actually realize how secure their, their holdings uh, with that exchange are or are not. <laughs> In this case, are not. Right, exactly. So, I mean, and all these, you know, all these exchanges, they'll, they'll, they'll give you promises with respect to the level of security that they have and uh, what they've done to safeguard your assets, but you know, as we've seen with Quadriga, that and uh, you know other exchanges in the past, Mt. Gox and uh, others, you know, there, there's definitely a risk. Yeah, the the your, your your currency, or at least your Bitcoin, is as safe as the person who says that it is safe. Exactly. And and in this case, in in Quadriga, the individual who said it was safe um, died with the knowledge of uh, all the passwords to the to the private and public wallets. Although there is some theories uh, that that uh, there was more, there's more to this than meets the eye, I guess what I'm leading to is shouldn't there be some kind of regulation by the government of these kinds of exchanges so that uh, people don't get lose fortunes or their life savings in a uh, crypto exchange or in cryptocurrencies generally? Uh, well. Um... There are certainly a lot of strong opinions as far as uh, regulation of cryptocurrencies go, and um, there has been some response by by regulators uh, in the wake of Quadriga. So, for example, the um, Canadian Security uh, Administrators, I think, together with uh, IROC, uh, the the organization that governs investment dealers in Canada, uh, published a consultation paper that outlined, uh, you know, a possible framework for regulating uh, crypto exchanges like Quadriga, specifically to, you know, try and I guess uh, reduce the likelihood of uh, of something like Quadriga recurring in the future. In addition to the uh, those people who lost lots of money at the crypto exchange run by Quadrigo. There are also um, instances of estates where the testator or the person who died uh, leaving behind cryptocurrency without passwords, without the private key uh, to their beneficiaries. We understand it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars now of lost cryptocurrency. Shouldn't there be some kind of government uh, installed backdoor uh, to this cryptocurrency so that these poor beneficiaries don't lose all that money? Wow, you, uh, you've opened up a huge, <laughs> huge can of worms, Lou, with, with that question. Um, and there's, there's some very, very strong opinions on, on that type of you know, backdoor mechanism when it comes to, to uh, Bitcoin and other other cryptocurrency. I mean, I, I totally hear what you're saying, and to some extent, it it it, it does make sense because 
after all, you have, uh, you know, millions, well, actually probably more like billions of dollars that, uh, that are sitting there that, uh, that can't be recovered. But the whole notion of a, of a, of a, of a back door to any sort of cryptocurrency, a backdoor in particular that's held by the government, uh, raises uh, uh, a huge number of concerns. I mean, th we're going through that debate uh, yet again um, right now, but not with respect to cryptocurrency, with respect to uh, encrypted communications generally. I mean, I think in Australia, they just recently passed a law that uh, mandates, you know, this type of backdoor access that you're talking about within the context of encrypted communications, right? So that if somebody, you know, they can basically get a wiretap uh, for an encrypted communication. And uh, the director of the FBI in the U.S. has, you know, in any number of speeches gone on and on about how uh, it's imperative that the U.S. be able to have some sort of backdoor to encrypted communications to, you know, ostensibly protect the public. <clears throat> so that's, you know, I'm not saying that's, you know, an invalid uh, point of view. Uh, sure, preventing crime is very important. Uh, safeguarding the public from crime is, is very important. Uh, but that's kind of, you know, one half of the argument. The other uh, half of the argument is that uh, building in a back door where anybody, whether it's the government or somebody else, uh, has access through the back door, introduces an inherent weakness uh, in the system that you've created, uh, thus rendering uh, the system much, much less secure than it w otherwise would be. So, you know, just as a simple example, um, let's say there was a backdoor by the government and there was a, somebody who didn't have the best intentions that worked for the government that, you know, decided to take it upon themselves to, uh, you know, uh, listen in on conversations they weren't supposed to, right? They, they, they'd be able to do so. Uh, similarly, um, or not similarly, but uh, another situation that... Uh, could be a cause for concern is that if you actually do build in a back door to a system that's otherwise cryptographically secure, uh, then uh, in one way or another, somebody else who isn't supposed to have access will eventually be able to access it. So, and that's an opinion that's been expressed by, you know, numerous cryptographic experts. They just say it, uh, it, it simply won't, won't work. Uh, and I guess, you know, the other thing about trying to enforce that type of backdoor mechanism is the fact that, you know, we're talking about uh, uh, digital technology, right? So if, if let's say, the U.S. enacted a, a requirement to have some sort of cryptographic backdoor, then <clears throat> really I think all people would need to do to, if they didn't like that, is to move to another jurisdiction, which can be pretty easily done because you're talking about, uh, you know, digital technology. So like this is all within the context of encrypted communications, but I think it applies uh, equally to, to cryptocurrency. It's exactly the same arguments uh, that would apply to having a backdoor for cryptocurrency. So I totally hear you when you say, you know, it's a shame that all these billions of dollars have been lost and um, it would be great uh, if the government could step in and uh, be able to safeguard those funds. But at the same time, 
you know, you're introducing what some would consider to be some rather fundamental flaws uh, in the uh, in the cryptocurrency environment. And I guess the other thing about that <laughs> is, you know, one of the whole, uh, and this is less a technological uh, concern and more philosophical concern, but um, a lot of people have adopted uh, cryptocurrency specifically because it, it enables them to I guess, get away from the prying eyes of the government, right? Bitcoin is, to some extent, an anonymous uh, a payment vehicle, uh, which, you know, uh, allows you to, I guess, escape the eye of, of governments, of regulators, and, and so on, to some extent as well. And um, it would be somewhat counter to that type of philosophy uh, to then have, you know, a, a backdoor built into, you know, whether it's Bitcoin or a, any other cryptocurrency. And I guess, you know, I, I, I don't think, I'm speculating here, but I don't think it'd be, you know, very well received by uh, a large proportion of the user base of cryptocurrency. Let's see, and there, and there you go. You, we have, uh, I guess, conflicting philosophies. Uh, do we allow cryptocurrency to remain anonymous? And some might say <clears throat> to be the tool of exchange of uh, international criminals so that they can't, uh, they can do their drug deals and their gun running outside of the eye of the FBI and the RCMP and Interpol. Or do we allow the government some kind of control on it? And at the same time, once you give the government some control, you invite government intervention and you invite government oversight. And you basically have to want to trust the government. And that's, uh, I can see both points of view. And it's it's a very interesting philosophy, a philosophical debate, rather. Maybe we should just go back to the stones of Yap, where <laughs> <laughs> you had a stone you put it in your front yard, people knew you owned it, and you can uh, just go ahead uh, and do what you can with it. But nobody certainly could hide it. Uh, with that, with that, David, uh, why don't we'll end our uh, our brief discussion? This is longer than we thought, but it's a fascinating topic. Uh, I would urge all our listeners to. Um, to look at our website to find David Ma and, and, and contact him. His uh, information is on the Blaney.com website. You can email or you can phone him and find out more about what he does. Uh, David, thank you for this. I very much appreciate it. Thank you, Luke.